0: Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. This morning we begin a a series uh, in Matthew 13. It's uh, where Jesus uses a series of parables to explain to us what the kingdom of heaven is like. Our reading this morning will begin in verse 44 and continue through verse 46. Those of you who are good at math will probably recognize right away That's not in order, uh, since we're going to be looking at the whole chapter over uh, the next number of weeks. But these verses, there's two stories, two parables that really go together. Jesus told them back to back to give a perspective. They should be seen together. uh, Give a wonderful introduction, wonderful overview of what the kingdom of God is like. And so it's a great place uh, to be able to launch in and then dissect and analyze the different aspects that Jesus wants us to see as we look through. With this perspective, we can look and and grasp and gain more than, uh, I think, out of the other passages when we see them. So we begin this morning in our reading in verses 44 through 46. Hear the word of God. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy... He goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. May the Lord bless us and give us understanding from his holy word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we gather here this morning, we commit ourselves to a time to study your word but we are in need of more than just giving our intellectual attention uh, to the words that you have given and even to um, extracting doctrine we are in need of your spirit to be at work within us to testify to us all that you have in mind and to show us how it applies to our lives particularly uniquely as individuals and to our life as a church also uniquely Lord, we do pray that you would reveal this to us and that you would be at work in us and use this time to shape us to become more like Jesus in mind, in value, and therefore in our lives. Work in us and continue the work that you began as we cling to the promise that what you began, you will see through to the end. Father, so therefore we pray for your spirit to be at work in us. In Christ's name, we offer our prayer. Amen. I assume like many of you, my wife and I enjoy when we can find a, a good deal. Some things that you probably don't know about us, my wife, one, being better at the deals, more patient and more committed to them, I run out of time, time, as money as my philosophy, and if it's going to take me more than five minutes, I figure it's, waste, it's not a deal anymore. But we do have a van that my wife purchased on eBay. Um, she shopped around, negotiated, bargained, and then found a way, a way to get a van for just several hundred dollars. I didn't know about it until one day on a Sunday afternoon, she informed me that after church, she and I were going to be driving to Big Stone Gap, Virginia. Uh, if you want to know where that is, you can't find it. Um, it's uh, um, it's go into the mountains turn left, and just keep on going. Uh, if you go to Kentucky, you've gone too far. Um, and so we drove up there, brought the van back. It was dented when we bought it, pretty banged up. But we had teenagers, so we figured this was safe, and this would work. As long as it drove, we didn't care what it looked like. Most of you will probably never see it, because even though we bought it in Virginia, there's not a chance in the world it would ever pass a Virginia inspe- State Inspection. <laughs> and So it will probably be left with our house uh, whenever that time comes. But. Uh, My wife also is active in couponing, or has been at different times, and I remember when we were living in Pittsburgh, coming home one day and wondering if the apocalypse was about to come. Uh, It was already past uh, the Y2K, so I wasn't sure exactly why, but we had enough toilet paper that should last us the rest of the century, stacked up in our garage. Not only that, but in another another corner of our garage, we just had cases, it seemed like cases and cases, but they were just bottles of two liter Coke bottles. So she had found some coupons, and I don't understand exactly how this works, but I think the phrasing was, she just kind of doubled down. Somebody was taking double coupons and doubling that, and whatever it was, apparently our car kind of tilted while she was coming, because in the back of the van was filled with two liter Coke bottles that she got for nothing. And then in the middle of the van was filled with toilet paper, so I have no idea how she was ever going to uh, drive and, and see home. But so we came home, and we have that. But inspired by her, occasionally I'll try to get a deal. And I remember one time having to go to pick up our son to kind of meet with him. So he had gone to the beach with some friends who lived in Pittsburgh. We were already in Tennessee. And they were not coming back in a route that was close to our home. And so they wanted for, to meet me at 9 o'clock in the morning in a city that was five hours from my house. Uh, and so I figured I would get a hotel and thought, I'd heard of this Priceline thing, I heard it was a good deal. I threw in a bid of $50, see if I could get in a four or five star hotel, and lo and behold, I got a four star hotel. Seemed like a good deal until I got there and found out that Priceline doesn't count into the factor of if you have to pay for parking. And so I had to pay as much in this inner city uh, for parking as I did for the hotel room itself. And so it kind of defeated the whole purpose of looking for a deal. So I'm still a work in process and nowhere near as good as my wife. But most of us probably enjoy getting a deal. We certainly like that better than getting taken. And if you are one who enjoys a good deal, then I I think that your ears ought to perk up when we hear Jesus speaking in this particular parable, in these two parables. Because Jesus is appealing to our consumer instinct as he makes a point about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus tells a story of two different guys who had each discovered a, a tremendous treasure, and then liquidated all their assets in order to appropriate the treasure that they had found. What Jesus wants us to understand from this particular passage, from these two men, is that the incalculable value of the kingdom of heaven is worthy of any sacrifice. So as we look at these two men, and we look at these few verses, I want to Consider some of the implications. Some of them are more obvious than others, but all of them are necessary, and they all stream together. And hope that that'll shape our minds and, therefore, our lives as well. The first thing that should probably be the most obvious is that Jesus is teaching us that God's kingdom has more value than anything else. There's nothing that compares with it. Jesus begins by saying the kingdom of treasure is like, or, the kingdom of, of heaven is like a treasure or a pearl. Now, it may be helpful to understand the historical context uh, that Jesus was teaching and the practices of the day. At the time, if somebody had something of great significance, a a treasure, whether it was uh, a jewel or or something else, they couldn't go down to BB&T or any of the banks and say, I want a safety deposit box or put it in a vault and it would be safe there and secure from anybody who might want to pilfer it. If somebody had something of, Value. they would take it out into a field and they would bury it in some place that only they knew where it could be found. Now, sometimes people would bury these things. Say a man went and buried his treasure. If he was a young man, he may be part of the military, go out to war, and if he was killed in battle, nobody knew where the treasure he had was buried. Some may not have even known that he had a treasure in the first place. Others may die of natural, uh, natural causes without ever having revealed the location of their buried treasure. And if that happened, then the land would pass on to an heir or it would be sold off. And sometimes people may know there's a treasure there but not know where it is. Sometimes they didn't even know there was a treasure there. And you can imagine that if a treasure lay buried over generation after generation and generation, eventually somebody was going to possess the land that has a treasure they had no idea that the land contained. Now, rightfully, in one sense, it was there. But another thing that was true in that day was that even though the, land, the treasure was buried in, on your land, it didn't, it belonged to you as long as nobody else claimed it. But if somebody else had it, somebody else found it, they were able to take it. There was, I think, the, the legal term and legalese was finders, keepers, losers, weepers. And, uh, <laughs> and that was the practice of the day. So in one sense, it's all the more amazing that the, this, the first guy who found the treasure in a field went and, and purchased the field, but he wanted to make doubly sure he wasn't open to any accusation. But Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like the treasure that was in the field or like a pearl that it wasn't in the jewelry store. The guy found it perhaps in some antique store or some junk store or someplace somebody had discarded it at an at a, at a auction or or uh, some, some sort of an estate sale. And he found something that he knew to be of, of great value. These were things that were of tremendous value, but the people who presently possessed them were not aware, and these two men found them and realized their, their great value. Now, when Jesus says that these guys went and they sold everything, both men sold everything in order to appropriate the the, the treasure and the and the pearl Jesus is reminding us that the kingdom of heaven he 's saying the kingdom of heaven is like this he 's telling us that the kingdom of heaven is worth everything it 's worth sacrificing anything and worth sacrificing everything. Some of you have probably seen the old shows antiques in the attic or, and uh, or antique road show and, 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 uh, and cash in the attic and in these TV shows, you have experts in, in valuing things, uh, coming and going some city, and people will bring things that they've had in their attic or had in their possession for years. A number of these things have been passed on for generations. They may have been family heirlooms. There's a sentimental attachment to them. Some of them, they just know they're there, and they're not supposed to get rid of them because they were valuable to somebody before. And somebody told them once they may be worth something. But they have no idea not only how my, what the value may be of these things, a lot of times, they don't even have an idea of what the thing is in the first place. They just know they have it, and it's just there, and so the guy's coming to town, and so they bring their items to see if they are of any value, and in many cases, what the thing is. And so they bring them, and the guy will look at it and say, do you know what this is? And usually, the, at least the ones they show on TV, they say, I have no idea. Do you know what it is? And so we'll tell them whether it's worth something or, or not worth something. That's really what's taking place here. That's what Jesus is is painting a picture in the ancient day of, of kind of the antique road show or the cash in the attic. It's just amazing that people have something that they don't know what it is, and at the same time, they have a lot of stuff that's just junk, and they think that that might be worth something as well, and it makes for an entertaining show. But Jesus is telling us that's the same for you and for me, and so he's telling this parable so that we understand, not only that we understand that the kingdom is of great value, and many of us who are believers have been united with Christ, that know that we have our salvation in him, and know that there's benefits to that, we have absolutely no idea of how great those benefits are. We have no idea what that's worth. We just know it's worth something. We know it's worth a lot. At the same time, most of us have baggage. Most of us have stuff that we cling to as if it's valuable whatever reason, and we, we mistake the things that are truly valuable, and we undervalue them, and we overvalue and overpossess the things that aren't worth keeping. And Jesus is saying to us as a challenge, he's telling this parable for a reason, because he's wanting people to understand the value of the kingdom, that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is of incomparable value. It's worth more than anything else. There's nothing that has greater value. To understand what the kingdom is, we need to also understand in one sense what it is. I mean, so I've now shared, and Jesus says it's, it's like a treasure, so we know that there's value. But unless we also know what it is, we, we don't really think much about the value. So what is the kingdom? The first thing that we need to understand is, is I've used interchangeably, and, and the, the, uh, most scholars would say that sometimes you'll see in the scripture kingdom of heaven, sometimes you'll see kingdom of God most scholars would say that those are interchangeable. There's not a distinction. So when Jesus is saying kingdom of heaven here, other places he speaks, he talks about the kingdom of God, uh, they are the same, same thing, different phrases for the same thing. Second thing that, we, that i just to take note of is that we need to understand when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, he's not talking primarily about a realm or a place. It's not a geographical territory. G- Jesus is speaking when he speaks of kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. He's speaking of a a reign or a rule. And so when we understand that, a good definition of what the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is, is this. The kingdom of heaven is the reign of Christ in the hearts and the lives of his people everywhere. I'm going to repeat that for those who take note or just to encourage to take note. The kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, is the reign of Christ in the hearts and the lives of God's people everywhere. And when we understand that definition and we flesh that definition out, we begin to have some idea of the benefits and the value of the kingdom. Now, obviously, to have Christ reigning in your heart suggests that there is salvation. And so the fundamental aspect, the fundamental benefit that we have as being having the kingdom, is we have been saved by Christ, in Christ, through Christ. Jesus speaks elsewhere, and he says, what does it profit you to gain the whole world but forfeit your own soul? So he gives a value, a definition. He helps us to compare. We can have everything, or we can have salvation in Christ. And if we were to stop there, it would still be a tremendous benefit, tremendous value to have the kingdom of God. But that's not all that Jesus is speaking about. He is speaking of the value of salvation, the necessity of salvation, of having Christ ruling and reigning in your heart, not just over your lives, but in your heart. One way we might look at this is there are many people, and perhaps some who are here, who do have Christ reigning over their lives. God has given us his word. Jesus has given us instructions. You might find value in living the way that Jesus has taught us to live. And so he shapes the way that you live. But it's not necessarily out of heartfelt you have not received Christ. He's not shaping your heart. He's not reigning in your heart. He's just reigning over your life. The one who has received Christ has Christ reigning over your affections, over the way that you think, over every aspect of things. And that inevitably shapes our lives. But I also begin to think of it in another way. We live in a culture with a number of experts, people who help us in different areas of our life. Many of you have financial advisors, and so you go to them and say, here's my money, or here's what I I want to invest, or I want to put forward for the future. What's the best way to invest that so that I can get the most return? And they're knowledgeable in the market and about money and different economic things, and they'll help you to invest. And so that you will hopefully have a great deal, a good bargain as a result of the investment that you make. We have other areas. People will help you as a life coach in practical aspects of your life. People will help you be in, in, in coaches in, in health. Some of us, uh, there are, you know, golf pros, even those for some of us who are irreparably damaged in our golf game. It's, it's beyond hope. There are professionals for almost anything. And we pay for these services because we find value in what they give to us. If we think about Christ and the promises that are associated with the gospel, when Christ comes into our lives, when we enter into citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus becomes the one who is reigning in our hearts and in reigning over our lives. He, in, in effect, without trying to minimize all that he's doing, he becomes the perfect and ultimate consultant. Because he's not only dealing with the issues of behavior, which then point to the issues of the heart, and he's asking, but he begins to expose everything within us. And he's able to help us to understand our own hearts, and therefore the way that we live, the way that we relate. Every aspect of our life is touched by Christ when he is reigning in our hearts and our lives. And so we pay all these experts for different areas of our lives, and yet when we realize that the value of the kingdom of heaven is that Christ, the sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe, the one who has all wisdom in every aspect, the one who knows you better than you know yourself, the one who knows every detail of my life and has made a commitment to exposing that so that we can deal with both the junk and build on the things that he's already begun to work on. We have him guiding, directing, shaping us. We begin to see another value. It is not just you have a ticket into heaven, but you have one who is shaping, guiding, and directing for your life. We spent a lot of money on these professional consultants. Apparently it's worth something, but Christ now guiding our life, we see there's a value, not just for eternity, not just for assurance, but for every practical dimension of our life. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is worth more than anything else. But we also see these guys sold everything, and it leads us to the second thing that we need to see. Every person must appropriate the kingdom personally. See, it's not enough to know that there's a kingdom and that in that kingdom there is value, any more than there is any benefit to having knowledge that there is a treasure. And since it's a treasure, it's it's valuable. Knowledge of the treasure doesn't give you any benefit whatsoever. Only if you appropriate it, only if it's yours, do you have any benefit. I'm going to read this because something that I I read not not long ago in in a magazine, Mental Floss. I don't know if any of you read that, but it's interesting, a number of things that uh, they come up with. But there was a man named Robert Morris, and I I butchered the facts in the the first service, so I'll just read it this time. But in 1820, a mysterious stranger left a locked iron box with Robert Morris, an innkeeper in Bedford County, Virginia. The stranger who went by the name of Thomas Jefferson Beale, said that a man would be coming to retrieve the box sometime in the next 10 years. However, if no one came, Morris could keep the box and the contents inside. But what was inside the box? Beale reluctantly revealed that there were three pages covered in numbers. These cipher texts were coded messages that could be only read by using a corresponding document as a key. Beale promised to send... The three keys to Morris when he arrived in St. Louis, so that the box, uh, so that should the box become Morris's, he could decipher the message and learn the location of a treasure Beale had buried nearby. Twenty years later, no one had ever come for the box, nor had Morris received any key documents from St. Louis. He went ahead and opened the box and spent the rest of his life trying to decode the pages, but to no avail. After his death, Morris left the box to a friend who surprisingly was able to decipher the second page using a particular copy of the Declaration of Independence. The page described the treasure itself, 2,900 pounds of gold, 5,100 pounds of silver, and thousands of dollars worth of jewelry. The message then went on to say that the exact location of the treasure was found on the first page. But they never recovered any key and have never been able to decipher the first page. See, he has all of the words necessary to take him to a treasure, to enrich him beyond his wild imagination. And yet, he has no treasure, no benefit, no value from it. I think it's important that we understand that, because we've been given this book that, for many, Sometimes feel like it needs to be decoded. Not all things are as easily read as others. And we can say we have comfort in the book, but unless we appropriate the promises and appropriate the benefits, we are missing out in what has been promised for us. We need to appropriate all the promises of the kingdom. We need to appropriate the promises of the gospel into our lives. Otherwise, the benefits, the riches, they still exist, but they're not doing us any good. And for that, that's where the transaction takes place. Now, these two guys, as you look at them, they, they had some clear similarities, but they're also very different as you look at them. And even their differences, well, both their similarities and differences, tell us important things about the kingdom, and perhaps even about our own lives. When we look at these two guys, one thing that we understand is that many people come, uh, to, to the gospel. Many people inherit their treasure uh, under different st- circumstances, perhaps different stations of life or different focuses in their life. These two guys are very different. The first guy, as we look at, was probably a poor, a poor man, or at least a, very, a, a working class guy, was not wealthy. He was working a field for someone else. We know he was working for somebody else because when he stumbled upon the tre- tre- treasure, he had to sell everything that he had in order to purchase that field. He wasn't working his own land. And in that day, if he was working somebody else's land, he probably didn't have any land of his own. And so therefore, he was probably a migrant worker or a day laborer or some sort of a servant for somebody else. He was not somebody who was in the upper crust. The second guy, whether he was a wealthy man, he was at least well-to-do. He was essentially, he was not only a merchant, but he was a, a jewelry broker. He was out in searching of pearls when he went out. And it's interesting, even when he found the particular pearl that we're told about, even this man who was an expert in jewels, he was just amazed at the glory of the treasure of the pearl that he found when he went. So you have one man who is not wealthy. You have another man who probably is wealthy, or at least well-to-do. And if nothing else, we see and are reminded yet again that God calls both the rich and the poor. There is not a distinction He doesn't call one because they're poor and leave the wealthy. He doesn't call the wealthy and then leave the poor. God calls whoever he calls because he chooses to call. We also see a different focus in these guys' lives. And perhaps they reflect your life. They certainly would reflect people that you know. The first guy was basically going about his own business or going about somebody's business, but he wasn't looking for treasure. He wasn't looking for something. He was just going through life doing his job when he stumbled over the treasure. The second guy was actually looking for something. He was looking for a pearl and then is amazed when he finds one because the caliber, the, the cut of it, the, the beauty of it was greater than anything else that he had. And both of them were compelled to liquidate everything that they have in order that they might receive and possess the treasures that they had found. Now, if I was going to put in contemporary terms the focus that these guys have, that may be your story. They certainly are people around us. We need to understand all of these ways that God is at work. One is the first guy was not looking for the gospel. The gospel just found him and just hit him. Whether he was content in his life or whether he had no greater expectations, he wasn't looking for anything. And somehow, he stumbles over the treasure. And in the metaphor that Jesus is using, helping us to understand it, is the kingdom of of heaven. It would be to understand that The gospel had come, and many of the people that were listening to Jesus would have been that way. They were contented with their lives, and then now, here's Jesus, who is not only preaching the gospel, but he's the embodiment of the good news that was promised by God, and now they got to deal with it. they got to deal with him. What are they going to do? Do they find him beautiful and valuable, or do they continue on? The first guy was somebody who was just going about their business, and that may have been you, when you came to Christ, that you were content, you were not looking for anything, you were not necessarily hungry, but the reality of Christ, the beauty of the gospel, it just hits you square in the face and you couldn't do anything but to stand and be amazed and you knew that you must give your life and it must possess you. The second guy was looking for something. We might call him in contemporary terms a seeker. He was seeking something of great treasure. If we were to use it as a metaphor, he may have been somebody who was religious. He may have even already been a believer in one sense. But let's assume he was just searching for some sort of peace or purpose in his life, and he was looking at the different religions, and he may have been an expert in that, familiar with that, familiar with the Bible and the teachings of Christ, familiar with other religions, and he's going and trying to gain more knowledge, more understanding when the gospel confronts him, and he realizes for the first time that he's a sinner, and that he can't possibly stand before God, and yet God in his grace has called him to himself, and so he just realizes that he's come to the end of himself, and he has to have this promise that Jesus is making. That too may be some of your stories. I said he may be a believer because there's actually another way that we can look at this, and and I think that as we apply this, it may be intentionally open-ended, but it is possible that he already was a believer. He already was enriched in some way. And that when the gospel confronted him, it was as if he was made new all over again. It's a story of a number of people that you're familiar with through history, and it's also mine. Jonathan Edwards talked about a point in his life that he'd been a believer for quite a long time. Some of the most profound insights that we'd be able to find in terms of day-to-day practical living, he wrote as a 19-year-old student. And yet it was later in his life when he just felt that he was born again. And Jonathan Edwards, if you read his, his theology, which I'm sure you all do, uh, on, just for hobby, um, is, uh, he doesn't believe in getting born again again. I mean, you get born again, but you don't get born again again. You're either born again or you're not. And so it, it just only happens once. But he describes his own experience as being born again again. And so if you put it together, you understand that he had just come to a richness of understanding of the gospel. That while he knew all the p- bullet points before, he may have been able to run the tally sheet and theologically express it, but he just never appreciated the value of it and he just was struck by it. John Wesley says essentially the same thing. And again, he says he became a Christian later on. He'd had a fairly effective ministry at one point. He'd had his failures, but he'd had a fairly effective ministry when he was reading, whether it was Romans or Galatians. Some theologians still continued to debate. I wasn't there, so I won't worry about it. I just commend both of them to you. But um, he just says at just one point, the Holy Spirit came, and he felt strangely warm. It's a contemporary writer named Jared Wilson who... Uses a phrase that I, I really—I'm just going to steal. Uh, it's just he uses—he calls it gospel wakefulness. In other words, that there are some who, at point of conversion, you just get it from the day, the very beginning. You see the beauty and the glory of the gospel, and, and your lives are shaped by it. And there's others, and I would put myself in this category. And apparently, I'm in the company of at least Edwards and and um, and Wesley, among others, and probably many of you. I've been believers for quite some time. I mean, you knew that you were a sinner. You needed to trust in Christ, that Christ had given himself as an atoning sacrifice for your sin, that in him we have a change. He dies so that we might live. He became sin so that we might become his righteousness. That that exchange had taken place, and you're believing all of those things. And so you have a relationship with God, and now you go through the motions. But at some point, there's a gospel wakefulness that takes place, and you realize the gospel of the kingdom of heaven is far greater, far more glorious, far more freeing, far more valuable than you had ever imagined before. I know as I've met some of you that that has been your experience because you've testified to it. My prayer is for those who are still here that that has not been their experience, that that will happen, that we would be a people that are truly rooted in the gospel, and the gospel is shaping every aspect of our lives. But this guy, whether he was seeking to become a religion Or whether he was saying, I know I'm a believer, but there's got to be something more. He found it. And Jesus uses the analogy in saying, see, what he found tangibly financially, that's what the kingdom of heaven is like for those who will believe. Each person must appropriate the kingdom personally. And so both men sell everything to purchase the field or to purchase the pearl so that they can have the benefits of what they have found. And it leads to our final observation. The kingdom is costly, but it is no sacrifice. In reality, it's just good business. See, both men knew that whatever they possessed was not as valuable as the treasures that they found. The first man may not have possessed much. The second man was at least comfortable, if not outright wealthy. But what they had wasn't as valuable as what they found. And so that compelled them to sell everything in order to purchase the field and the pearl. So We look at that, one of the things that struck me is that I know that at the same time both men paid a different price for their treasure, and they paid the same price. I confess that that's convoluted thinking, but I'm a convoluted thinker, and so therefore, let me unpack that a little bit. Both men sold everything they had, but they didn't have equal. The one man didn't have much, and so he sold everything, and the one man had a lot, and he sold everything, and then they both paid everything that they got from their estate sale. But they didn't come up with the same, so they had a different price. They both gave a different payment, but they both gave the same payment at the same time because the command is, give it all. Christ doesn't want a portion of your life. Christ calls you to himself. He says, come, all of you, all of it, give it all up. Do not compartmentalize it. Do not think that you have excess. It's either all or nothing. That's the deal. Now, in his grace, when we keep on trying to go back to the stuff in our attic that was worthless and thinking that that has value because it's sentimental value, his grace has already covered that. He already knows we're a mess. That's why he died and loves us in the first place because of his love. But he says to come to me, and it's a constant thing, and he reminds us continually we must give our lives, every aspect of our lives, over to Christ if we're going to have the benefit. Because the more we cling to these other things, the more we cling to things that are in our past that are of not particular value, the less we value and the less benefit we have from the things that Jesus is promising to us. And so I would challenge you to be a people to look at your lives and ask yourself, am I clinging to things or have I liquidated everything so that I can be a follower of Christ? It's not a question that you ask just today. It's not a question you ask just at your conversion. It's a question that you ask every day, because somehow we are able to find our old stuff and bring it back. Another thing that we need to note is that, and it's important that we need to see that the the selling of everything, the giving up of everything, is a consequence of finding the treasure. It is not a condition for finding the treasure. See, people confuse that and assume that if they get their lives in order, if they will follow Christ, if I will do this, then I'll get the secrets of the kingdom. I'll get the benefits of the kingdom. And so we try to qualify ourselves. But these men both found it prior to selling everything and possessing. Grace comes to us. We don't go find it. But when grace did come, when they saw the value of it, when we see the value of the kingdom of heaven living in it, the value of the gospel in our lives then they were compelled to sell, to rid themselves of everything that they had in order that they might have that treasure. And my hope is that we would be a people that realize that over and over again and that realizing that grace has found us, the gospel has found us, now seeing the beauty of it knowing that the only way to have it is to give everything else up, that we are compelled to give it up, realizing that is where the real value is. But how do we do this practically? Because obviously the illustration is dealing with money, and that's not really what Jesus had in mind here. It may be for you, but for some it may not be. You may or may not have things. But reading a message by the great British preacher Charles Spurgeon on this passage, he suggests that there are three different aspects to our lives that we need to liquidate. I won't have time to go into great detail, but there's not a need to, because they create categories for us, and I'll briefly explain what he suggests, because they are of probably more value than the money itself. And money may be included in one of these headings. The first thing that Spurgeon says that we need to liquidate is our old prejudices. Now, by that, he's not talking about necessarily bigotry, although if that is an issue that you wrestle with, that's something that you're going to have to rid yourself of. But what he's talking about is our old prejudice is is the way that we look at the world, the way we see the world, the things that we value because of the way that we look at the world. The way that we think, and Spurgeon is saying that one of the things that you've got to do is realize that you need to begin to see the world with gospel eyes. You need to see the kingdom of heaven, through the kingdom of heaven eyes rather than the way that the world sees the world, the way that we were trained to see the world, the way that we may be naturally inclined to see the world. We need to get rid of that and begin to look at the world the way God has revealed the world through his eyes and then through, through his word and the way that Jesus looks at the world through the gospel. And see, it is broken and warped and yet beautiful and redeemable and being redeemed. So, we need to change the way we think and our values. Confessing to the Lord that we value things that are not His way of doing things and then allowing His Spirit, according to God's promise, to come and work and to begin to cleanse us. The second thing that Spurgeon says that we need to deal with is the pleasure of sin. We need to liquidate the pleasure of sin. And it's significant that he doesn't say liquidate sin. It's not that he doesn't think that we should do that. He just knows that we won't. You can liquidate it today. It will be back tomorrow. Because sin is not our behavior. Sin is our condition. It comes from within. So no matter how well you clean yourself up, it's, just, it's going to continue. Paul says in Galatians that if you're a Christian and you're breathing, you've got a war going on within you. You have now the spirit, and then you have the flesh that is still alive, and they're going to constantly be at war. And so it's constant. So Spurgeon's not saying, stop sinning, though that is his desire. What Spurgeon says, give up the pleasures of sin. In other words, acknowledge that there is pleasure in sin, otherwise you probably wouldn't do the things that you do. Lay the pleasures out before God and say, God, I find pleasure in this to the point that I'm willing to forsake you or your commandment or something there, or trying to juggle the both. Deal with the pleasures, admit the weaknesses of that, and, and start asking yourself in the areas where you find yourself continually struggling, what is the pleasure that makes you go back to the same thing over and over again? Lay that out before the Lord. Just empty yourself. It's not a matter of saying, I will no longer take pleasure in this. If you could do that, then we would all be much better than we are. But acknowledging the pleasure what it is that brings pleasure to you, laying that out before God and then clinging to his grace to begin and continue to clean you up. That's how we begin to liquidate the pleasure of sin. And the last one that Spurgeon tells us that we need to liquidate may be the most confusing for some and it may be the most difficult of all because he tells us that not only are we supposed to change the way we think or, or uh, get rid of our old prejudice, not only are we to get rid of the pleasures of sin, we are also to liquidate our own righteousness or self-righteousness. That's confusing to a lot of people because we keep telling everybody to be righteous. And you've been declared righteous if you're in Christ. And now grow in actual righteousness and be righteous. So now Spurgeon is saying that we need to get rid of that. And the reason he's saying that is not because actual righteousness is something that is bad for the Christian. But when we begin to see progress in our lives, or when we're at least better than somebody else in our lives, we begin to base our identity and our comfort and our sense of progress on those things and rather than on Christ alone. So Spurgeon says we need to liquidate that. A more contemporary theologian, some of you may know, Jack Miller in Sonship, he made the astounding statement that says we're not only to repent of our sin, but we repent of our righteousness as well. And so for many of us, there are things that we know that we're good at that maybe we're better than most people or at least better than some. And we allow those to be our identity. We clothe ourselves in those things. And we want people to accept us on, those basis, on that basis and maybe even thinking that God accepts us on that basis. We know it's not true, but we feel that. What Spurgeon is rightly saying is we need to find what those things are and realize we've got to get rid of that and, real- and cling and realize Christ alone. Christ alone is our hope, our identity, our comfort, our assurance. He is our all and all. And so if you're wanting to appropriate the benefits of the kingdom of heaven, these are the things that you liquidate. But then what happens is, how do you actually acquire? Once you've liquidated, you give your life. You believe what Christ has done, and you continually are giving your life. It's a renewal. You're believing all over again. And realizing that while we are tempted to go back to the way things were and bring in the old junk, we are constantly believing that Christ is sufficient and trusting in Christ's promises. And we live free. And as we see here, the result of that kind of living, the result of that kind of faith, is joy. That's what the man said. The man sold everything and then in his joy, actually he had the joy before he sold everything. But that life, is a production of joy. Now, how much is joy worth? That's why we do everything we do. Because we want joy. We want pleasure. And the promise of living this way is joy. I want to challenge you. Make a decision today, one many of you have already made many times before, But to be kingdom people to realize that to give up the junk in order to acquire the treasure is not a bad deal. But that's the deal that Jesus is asking us to make. That's the purpose of these parables. To be a kingdom people simply means that we liquidate all that we presently value and treasure all that Christ is. Promise of the gospel is that that is a bargain in which you get far more than what you have any idea. But the richness of it will continue to unfold in our lives and through all eternity. I challenge you and encourage you: make the deal. Let me pray, Father, as we come. I pray that you would continue to be at work within us. Help us to be aware of our our tendency and our our, our weakness. As the old hymn says, not only are prone to wander, but help us realize all the more your greatness, your graciousness, your worth, and your worthiness. Give us eyes that can see the beauty of Christ and what it is to live free in Him as opposed to seeking success or whatever we seek in this world. Father, may this serve for us as a foundation and give us understanding, at least in part, of how great your kingdom is. Teach us and speak to us, I pray. And I pray in Christ.